The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investment opportunities in healthcare and what's moving the market. My guest is Barron's Healthcare Reporter, Josh Nathan Cases. Welcome, Josh. It is so good to be back with you on Barron's Live. Good to talk to you as well. So amazingly, and we should reflect for a moment on just how amazing this is, the COVID emergency officially ended this week. What exactly does that mean? Well, this is a designation by the federal government that has implications for various federal programs. Um, and uh, you know, the, the details range from, you know, um, who pays for COVID tests to um, some important details related to med- the Medicaid program. Um, you know, this is not a designation by uh, the World Health Organization or the CDC. This is a political decision. This is um, about money. Not about exactly, exactly. Right, not about. But still, you know, I mean, it comes at a time when, uh, you know, the 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 impact from COVID is quite low relative to where it's been at other points in the last three years. That's a relief to hear. Do you have any of the latest stats on where we stand? I do. I mean, you know, we've been we've been opening these calls with these stats for a long time, and it may be time to to stop just because um, the the acuteness of uh, of the situation has has declined and. The focus on it is, has declined, but but you know, just just because we're talking about it, you know, the we're averaging about the U.S. is averaging about five thousand four hundred hospital admissions per day from COVID, down eight percent over the last two weeks. Um, deaths, the, the easy numbers to find now are, are, are on a weekly basis. It's about one thousand seven hundred weekly deaths. Um, that's that number was over four thousand in January. And it's down about 20% over the last two weeks. Um, you know, one interesting thing to track is the variant makeup. You know, which variants are currently circulating in the U.S. Um, people will recall XBB.1.5. That's the one that sort of raised concerns earlier this year. Um, right now, it accounts for virtually all of the cases in the U.S. Um, and I think some of the worries about it um you know, have not come to fruition. Uh, there's a there's a newer variant, XBB.1.9.1. Uh, it seems to be called Hyperion. It's slowly gaining share. It's coming up to about five percent in the U.S. Um, interestingly, it's actually not descended from XBB.1.5. Um, uh, the WHO has flagged it, it has flagged interest in another variant, XBB.1.16. Those two, uh, Hyperion and 1.16, are somewhat similar. They have some mutations that may be of concern. But the WHO has said that there are no reported rises in ICU admissions or death due to any of the currently circulating XBB lineages. So all in all, you know, I mean, there's things to watch, but the COVID situation is not bad right now. This is incredibly good news and a, just a joy to get to that point, even on Barron's Live. Yeah. Where, where we can consider opening our 
conversation with something else. So now let's move on to pharma. I think we both agree that the development of new drugs to curb obesity is the biggest healthcare development of the year, and maybe in several years, even if some of these drugs aren't yet approved for obesity treatment. Lily's Manjaro, for example, has been approved for diabetes, and the company is working toward obesity approval. What does this mean for Lilly, and what does it mean for Denmark's Novo Nordisk, which has developed some competitors? Yeah, and, and I should say, actually, that you know, there's, there's news on this, which is that Novo um, put out earnings today. They almost doubled. I'm, I'm just reading a report on this. They, they doubled or nearly doubled estimates for sales um, due to incredibly high demand for their obesity drugs. So these drugs, uh, you know, versions of these drugs have been around for a little while. Um, what's really changed, I think, is, is the Lilly drug, Manjaro, turned in some very, very good uh, results in, in terms of its efficacy with regard to weight loss. Um, and, uh, and, and there's been sort of, I think, a cultural phenomenon developing around um, the Novo drug Ozempic. Um, you know, it's one of those rare drugs that sort of left the pharmacy counter and become a sort of cultural phenomenon with, with really broad implications. Say it again. It's become a Hollywood thing. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it has a similar implications for, you know, broad cultural issues. Um, you know, you could, you could think about, you know, Prozac or Viagra years ago having those kinds of changes in the way think, people think about health in certain conditions. Um, you know, Manjaro gets a lot of focus here, even though it's not yet approved for obesity. This is the Lilly drug. Um, and, and sales expectations for this drug are enormous. There is an analyst out there who has said, that he expects Majaro sales to peak at 100 billion per year. You know, just thinking about that in context, um, putting aside the COVID drugs, the top-selling drug of all time had, you know, peaked at like 25 billion per year. Um, so, so th that would be remarkable. I mean, the, the facts that set consensus estimate for Majaro right now is 21 billion by 2028. Um, so, so, what does yeah, all that mean for Lily's stock? So Lily stock, this is baked into Lily stock. I mean, Lily stock is up something like double over the last two years, um, and I think that there, there, there is a a sense, perhaps, that um, you know, that that at least the 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 opportunity in Lily maybe played out at least for now. Um, the stock trades at a very high earnings multiple for for the pharma sector. It's at nearly forty times earning forward looking earnings, um, according to facts that. And, and, and so far this year, uh, Lilly shares are actually underperforming the market. There are also some concerns around Lilly for Lilly uh, with regard to certain near-term risks. Um, this is, uh, we, we've discussed in the past these Alzheimer's drugs. Uh, Lilly has one called Denanumab. They're expecting phase three data mid-year and expectations around that are not great. There's also data coming from Novo Nordisk on cardiovascular outcomes for patients on their weight loss drug, Wagovi. Um, and, and that speaks to, you know, proving that the sort of weight loss that you see in patients who take these drugs is accompanied by, you know, the other health benefits that you might expect from a person, uh, you know, losing a significant amount of weight. That hasn't been shown yet. Um, Lily is running trials to show that. And um, Novo has these trials to show that. And Novo's data is coming this year. And if that's not good, you know, it, if the results of that trial are not good, it has implications for insurers and who's going to cover these drugs. And that's a whole separate issue. Um, but I think taken together, looking at those catalysts, I think 
some people are, are are stepping back from the league right now and looking for other ways to play this obesity trade. You know, that's not to say that I, I think people generally think that Lily has shown that it's um, got quite a remarkable ability to generate uh, new drugs. They, they don't have some of the um, patent cliff issues that the rest of the group has. Like Lily is clearly a, a, a you know a healthy good investment is just a matter of whether at the current price point it's as attractive as it was 8, 12, 13, 18 months ago. Right. There may be a better entry point down the road. You're certainly going to be writing a lot more about this and we will circle back to it in future calls. It's been quite a development. So are there other ways to play the weight loss business as we wait yeah. for some of these drugs to be approved? Yeah, there was an interesting... Um, note this week from a Goldman Sachs analyst who was pointing to the company that was formerly known as Weight Watchers. Now their name is WW International. Um, I think it was on Monday, they closed an acquisition of a telemedicine company. It's called Sequence. It, it, they basically offer weight loss products, you know, uh, over the phone or, 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 or the computer. It's the same kind of thing as this company called Hims and Hers. They did that for like Viagra um, and, and, and other products. Um, but basically, this now gives Weight Watchers or WW the ability to prescribe Wagovi um, or, or Manjaro if it's approved in obesity. And there's a Goldman analyst who, after the deal closed, put out a note saying that it's really a tremendous opportunity for Weight Watchers. And he raised his price target on Weight Watchers from around $4 to $13. And the stock went from around $4 to around $6. So they didn't follow him all the way up. But, um, but, but, you know, it sort of spells out how some of the established players in the sort of quote unquote weight loss or diet industry um, might be looking to, you know, uh, uh, get, get in on this, this trend uh, or this shift towards these, these diet drugs or these weight loss drugs, I should say. Um, what, is, what would it mean, though, for Weight Watchers traditional business? Well, Weight Watchers traditional business, well, traditional business has been has been struggling. Um, their subscriptions are down. Their digital subscriptions saw a pretty dramatic increase during uh, COVID, but now it's back below 2019 levels. I think this kind of um, you know cyclicality is not unusual in in the Weight Watchers type business. But you know what this analyst was saying, like yes, you could see the you know the the pill cannibalizing, um, or I guess the prescription business cannibalizing the traditional business. But they really are complementary. I mean, it should be said, um, uh, when or the, the weight loss drugs are meant to be used as part of a, you know, a, a program of involving diet and exercise. So you can see, you know, um, uh, some 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 crossover there. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons why uh, there 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 might be um, the, these businesses could work together. You know, the other thing is that Weight Watchers has the names of a lot of people who potentially could take this drug, um, both current and former members. Um, you know, uh, these drugs are, are also diabetes drugs. And the, uh, the analyst was saying, you know, people who are eligible to receive these drugs as diabetes treatments are going to do it through primary care doctors. Um, but people who are eligible for taking it, um, you know, as a treatment for obesity might be looking for other ways to access the medicine. Um, so that's that's the idea, and investors seem to find it compelling. Uh, Weight Western shares went up something like sixty percent this week. 
Okay, but let's that. remember that WW International traded above 100 five years ago. Right. However, any little uptick helps. The company has been on quite a journey trying to find itself. So much of the country has been focused not, not only on weight loss drugs, but on a recent batch of contradictory rulings on sales of mifepristone, the so-called abortion drug. Josh, I'm going to ask you to put your legal hat on for a moment and tell us where this is headed and why the biopharma industry sees a potential rollback of approval as a much broader threat. Yeah, excuse me. Yeah, and th this is this is a um, some fascinating situation. I have, listeners probably have followed this to one degree or another. It's been everywhere over the past three or four days, right? Um, right. The, the latest is, right, that a Texas judge, a federal judge in Texas, uh, district court judge on Friday issued an injunction ordering the FDA to roll back its 20-year approval of um, this abortion pill, not only in his district, you know, or in the, the circuit, um, but but a national rollback. Um, yesterday, an appeals court, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, basically said that while the FDA's, you know, 20-year-old approval could stand, it also allowed certain aspects of the text of the of the district court judge's injunction to stand um aspects relating to more recent changes or or, or um, um changes to the label that the fda made um something like seven years ago so at least for the time being um this drug can't be sent by mail and also it can now only be used until the seventh week of pre-pregnancy it was previously um available or at least you know, uh, uh, approved to be used up until the 10th week. Um, look, the, the implications here are, I think, quite broad. I mean, you have to think about how drug companies work, right? They spend uh, billions of dollars at times making their way through the FDA approval process with the idea that if the FDA says, yes, you have access to the U.S. Uh, healthcare market, prescription drug market, which is the richest um, and most remunerative in the world. Um, and if it is the case that an individual district court judge can reverse an FDA approval decision, um, all of a sudden the investment that drug companies make in getting their drugs, FDA approvals, uh, you know, it doesn't mean what it once meant. And, and, and you, can, you can see a drug company saying, wait a second, uh, why am I spending uh, X hundred million or X billion dollars going through, you know, designing trials, um, you know, going through this approval process, running large trials in order to get this approval if an individual judge can reverse it on a whim any at any point for the next decade? Um, or of course, more. the judge can tell you it's not on a whim. But sure. But but I think the, the point is that uh, it, it's like it makes these investments these drug companies make. It has an element of risk, these investments that, that no one had considered before. Um, and so, you know, um, there was a letter that got a lot of attention signed by a lot of uh, drug or pharma executives. The only big pharma CEO to put their name on it, and this letter, you know, strenuously objected to the injunction. The only big pharma CEO to put their name on it was Albert Borla, but there were also signatures by, you know, the CEO of Biogen, Vertex, other large cap or larger um, biotechs. Um, and now I think there's a question about what's going to happen. The, the, the drug, uh, 
Bepristone itself is made by Denko Laboratories, which is a private firm. There's also a generic version made by another private firm called Gen Bio Pro. I believe it's the only product sold by both of those companies. Um, so, uh, you know, there's no, um, there's no uh, uh, public company that is directly impacted by like an inability to sell this particular drug. Um, I think the concern is is a much broader one. And, you know, if you start thinking about, you know, playing out what could happen, areas where FDA approvals might be challenged, I think that the obvious thing is vaccines. I mean, you know, the anti-vaccine movement is not nearly as organized or well-established or well-funded as the um, anti-abortion movement. However, it has gotten a lot bigger and 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 better funded over the course of the COVID pandemic. And there is at least one group called Children's Health Defense that is quite active in terms of its uh, litigation efforts. In fact, they have a, an antitrust case before the same Texas court judge who filed the injunction in the Mephepristone uh, case. Yes. I, you know, I, I asked them for a, a statement about whether, you know, this decision, this injunction, you know, what, what they thought it meant for their efforts their response was actually a little hard to parse, but it, it, they, they basically thought it was a good thing. They referred to a specific a separate case they have in Texas that's challenging the uh, emergency use authorization of the COVID vaccines for children. They thought that this pointed to them having a better chance in the um, Fifth, Cir Fifth Circuit. At the time they said that, the Fifth Circuit hadn't actually said anything yet. But now the Fifth Circuit has said it's something I... I think that you know their their point is is pretty well taken. Um, I think it it's gonna um, this will there depending on what happens over the next few weeks with regard to this particular injunction. I think um, we could see a lot of activity um, and questions about other FDA approvals, and and I think that is what really worries the industry. We're in fascinating territory. Do you think this is going to go up to the Supreme Court? I'm just not as enough of a legal expert to to really know. I mean, obviously, if, if you read the coverage, there's this issue of a separate case from Washington, a separate uh, injunction from a separate federal judge in Washington that seems to oppose uh, Washington State that runs directly contrary to the Texas decision. So potentially, you might um, you know need the Supreme Court to step in and make a decision between both. But, yeah, but I, I I'm I'm not enough of a expert on, on the legal aspect. Fascinating really topic, Joe. So I know you're, I know you're not lawyer, Josh, I call you Dr. Josh, but I'm going to stay on the litigation theme for a moment. Johnson & Johnson seems to have made some progress in resolving talc litigation against the company. Plaintiffs allege that the talc in J&J's baby powder causes cancer, a charge the company, of course, denies. Where do things stand now in the talc litigation? Yeah, so th this, you know, this I think if you had asked most investors about the talc litigation in January, they would have said, hey, this is over and done with. Uh, it was not in front of mind. But then um, in in late January, a, a appeals court judge essentially said that this novel and controversial strategy that Johnson & Johnson had adopted to try to essentially get its talc problems out of the trial courts and into bankruptcy court. This appeals court judge said you can't can't do that. Um, j and shares fell on that news. What happened last week is that j, &J basically tried again, that same strategy. Uh, they, they made some changes 
and they tried again. The details maybe aren't worth getting into, but as part of what they tried uh, of their sort of new attempt, they announced that they had reached a deal with a group of the plaintiffs in the Talc litigation under which J&J would pay them about $9 billion. Um, now, they don't have all the plaintiffs on board. That's a key issue. The plaintiffs will eventually have to vote. Um, but that is one of only a number of reasons why this might not work. Uh, it's possible the appeals court that didn't like their prior attempt to do this will not like this attempt to do this. I think the bottom line, though, is that um, you know coming to some sort of agreement with some of the plaintiffs uh, gives them a place to start if this whole gambit doesn't work and it ends up back in the trial courts. It sort of sets up a, um, a, a baseline under which they could try to reach some sort of settlement. So I think there's progress here uh, towards some sort of re resolution, but you know, it's not happening on the timeline uh, that J&J would have chosen. So what does all of this mean for J&J's pending spinoff of its consumer health brands? And what does it mean for the stock? Yes, and that, that, I think that's the big question here. And that's the sort of looming, um, the, 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 the looming question. So. As people may or may not recall, you know, JJ is sort of the last of the big pharma firms to hold on to this conglomerate model, you know, that was um, that nearly all of the pharma firms, big pharma firms adopted in, in past decades. And over the past few years, you know, they've all spun off their animal health divisions. They've all spun off their consumer health divisions. They've all spun off, um, uh, you know, they owned all sorts of things and they don't anymore. And now, you know, Lilly, Pfizer are, you know, pure play biopharma companies. Novartis is moving that, you know, everybody is moving that direction or is there. Um, and J&J, &J, you know, famously is not. It's a big conglomerate that owns tremendous consumer health division, medical devices, and um, and then it's, you know, the, the, bio, the pharmaceuticals. J&J uh, is not getting rid of the medical devices. They call it MedTech now, but they are actually planning to separate uh, their consumer health division uh, under the name Kenview. Now, Obviously, the talc stuff is related to the consumer health division. So I think that the the fact that the talc stuff is not yet resolved shed, raises questions about um, what's going to happen with this Kenview spin out. And uh, I shouldn't say spin out. I don't think they've said exactly how they're going to separate it, but they're, they're going to separate it. Somewhere. And they're still going to own um, part of it, I think. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure of the details on that. But but the, the point is that I you know when 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 investors are asked to value. Uh, this new company it makes uh, it very hard. It makes it hard uh, if the talc litigation is still an overhang. So I, I, I imagine that that is weighing into both J and J's position here, and also, you know, the negotiating tactics of the plaintiffs' attorneys, particularly those who are not signed on to this nine point nine billion dollar deal. I mean, I'm speculating, but uh, it seems likely to me that 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 timeline is relevant. Seems like a, a very good opportunity for the legal profession and a big mess for J&J. &J. So let's take a look for a moment at bird flu, which you've been writing a lot about. What is happening in terms of the spread of bird flu and what are the prospects for a vaccination of U.S. flocks? Yeah, we, we spoke about this recently um, on this on this call, you know, as people will remember, has been... Right. A major issue um, in, in in the poultry industry this year and last year, 
um, with regard to this avian influenza, the strain called H5N1 that has sickened birds in hundreds of flocks and has led to the destruction of um, you know, tens of millions of, of chickens mostly. And, and the question is, you know, vaccines for bird flu in poultry for, do, do exist and, and some other countries use them. And the question is, will the US use them? And there was some reporting in March by other outlets, the federal government was moving towards a vaccination policy for poultry. We had a story last week saying that's probably not so likely. You know, there, there are um, a number of companies that do make H5N1 vaccines or vaccines that can protect against H5N1. In fact, there's a private French company called Seva, Siva Sante Animal that makes about 400 million doses per year of a relevant vaccine at a factory in Kansas. But the U.S. does not allow their use here because if it were to do so, that would allow trading partners to stop importing our chickens. And that, that's sort of a broader issue here. And, and, and that has to do with with broader trade rules that, you know, there's a concern that if you have vaccinated flock, um, uh, you, you it would be harder to identify sick animals. So if you're exporting a, a vaccinated group of, say, chickens or cows or whatever, um, the importing country can 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 be might, might worry that sick animals would um, would slip in among the vaccinated animals because it becomes harder to identify sick animals in a vaccinated flock. Um, and you know, outbreaks can have a a really big impact on the export of poultry in the U.S. Um, it's a we we export this country exported six billion dollars worth of poultry meat last year. The last time there was a avian influenza outbreak in 2014-2015, exports of chicken meat dropped by about a billion dollars. So you know the, the risks are high, and it's an important industry. Um, now this outbreak exports have not been hit so hard, and I think companies are hoping to for it to stay that way. You know, it, it's interesting. The public companies have been doing all right. Um, there's, there's a company called Calmain Foods, ticker C A L M. It's the largest. U.S. egg producer, mm -hmm. it says that its farms have not been affected by bird flu. And in fact, its earnings jumped pretty sharply. You know, they're benefiting from the higher egg prices that are, you know, born of the broader scarcity uh, of eggs, uh, but they are not incurring the cost of infected chickens because they have not had infected chickens on their farms. So that's kind of interesting. Now, the, the question is, if this particular strain becomes endemic here, you know, should we vaccinate? We spoke with experts who said yes. Um, uh, but, you know, the the question is whether the government gets there. The, the USDA is currently testing four vaccines in chickens. One is made by Zoetis, which is uh, the uh, animal health company that spun out of Pfizer a number of years ago. Uh, you know, if the U.S. were to vaccinate against this in, in, in the poultry, it's logistically quite complicated. There are literally um, about 10 billion chickens raised for meat every year and hundreds of millions that are in laying farms that the meat birds haven't been as affected as much it's really mostly been an issue for the layers but it is potentially dangerous to the birds to send a lot of people into layer farms to to you know vaccinate chickens the more people you have coming in the more risks you have someone bringing in the bird flu um so the advice from one of the experts i spoke with is, is that basically they should vaccinate the layers as chicks and that would take a number of years to achieve, you know, full vaccination of the layer flock. Um, so this is really a long-term thing. And I think it's also 
important to say that this is not hugely material to the vaccine companies or the companies that would make these vaccines. First of all, a number of them are private, but also chicken vaccines cost like a, a penny or less. Um, so it's uh, at least for, for, for example, you know, Zoetis, which is uh, quite a large publicly traded company, you know, um, e even if you start selling tens, hundreds of millions of doses of uh, chicken vaccine um, every year, it's not really um, moving the needle so much. There's a lot to think about, though, and it certainly keeps vaccines for, in in front of our minds. So, may affect things, but it's a good story. Thank you for doing all that research, Josh. I want to go to some listener questions, and then we'll come back and take a quick look at how the healthcare indexes have been performing this year. She has asked, what are the most transformational aspects of the healthcare market? What companies will lead? And I would ask you, what parts of, um, just to reframe the question a bit, what parts of the healthcare market are people most excited about these days? I mean, perennially, perennially investors are really focused on these, the sort of largest markets out there that need to be addressed. And that for a long time has been obesity and Alzheimer's. And, you know, there's um, a number of Alzheimer's catalysts coming up this year. We're going to learn about um, the Biogen, Biogen uh, A-side drug, Lakembi, and whether it's going to be fully approved and what coverage is going to be like. And we'll learn more about coverage for Manjaro. Um, I'm sorry, coverage for the obesity drugs. And, and, and so I, I think those are really the, the focuses here. All right, Chris wants to know if you have an opinion on the impending Johnson & Johnson spinoff, Kenview, and whether you have an estimate of its approximate market cap. That seems kind of hard to arrive at. Yeah, I, 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 do, I don't, I don't, um, I just think that, you know, at least for me, the most interesting question is like, uh, how, how does the Kenview sort of march towards a Kenview rollout coincide with um, these lingering questions about the talc liabilities. How have other healthcare spinoffs of consumer products done? Have you tracked them? Yeah, well, you know, we, we talked a lot last year about the Haleon one um, that, that came out of Glaxo, but it was made up of a, it was a joint venture between uh, GSK and Pfizer. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was initially a little bit disappointing. The main issue there, I think, is that, or at least a large issue there, is that both GSK and Pfizer together own about 40% of um, Halion, or at least did. And, and I think one one thing weighing on the company was that, you know, they had both said they were going to sell those shares. So people, I think, were reluctant to buy, given uh, an expectation that the stock would, would drop. They also had some questions around uh, Zantac liabilities, which we've spoken about in the past. Um, so uh, they, they, they've had, I think, had a sort of a bit of a, a rough entry it was also like not the greatest environment um, to come in. Um, that's the only other pure play consumer health company. Timing timing is a big factor there. So Charlie has asked about, um, he notes that valuation multiples on healthcare service providers have come down sharply. And he wonders if the group is attractive at this point, given valuations. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it seems to me that um, those valuations went up a lot um, uh, last year. Um, I don't know, it's not front of mind for me, but I, I do wonder if the fact that CVS sort of chose its target um, maybe diminishes some of the enthusiasm around the potential for M&A there, but I, I don't know. 
Okay, and Lee has asked a big question you probably cannot answer today, but I'll throw it out there. We should come back to it. Do you have any preliminary thoughts on how artificial intelligence could come to influence the delivery of medical care? Um, no. <laughs> but it will. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Sure and well. and we will we will take a closer look at that. And John wants to know whether you can discuss any recent CRISPR progress that's being edited. Yeah, no, I'm sorry, I don't have any insight. Okay, Bill Alpert is our CRISPR expert. Yes, around here, so we'll have to tap him the next time. And Josh, I thought it would be helpful. We have now passed the first quarter. We're at the beginning of the second quarter. Earnings season is starting. It's been an okay year for stocks so far. It's been a fabulous year compared with last year, but not such a great year for healthcare stocks. Let's get a wrap up of how the major indexes are doing. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, the S&P is up 7%. The XLV, which is the healthcare select sector, Spider uh, is uh, basically flat. Um, you know, biotech uh, ETF, the XBI is down 5%. The, uh, there's a medical device ETF, IHI, which is up 5%. But I, the, the basic story here is that healthcare had a great 2022, especially the large cap side. And it's having even, a, even while growth stocks did not, they were the place to be. Right. And, and, and it's not having a good 23. And I think there's the question is, is this cyclical? Is there a rotation away from, you know, these kind of, from, from the sector? Um, or... You know, are investors taking another look, for example, at at big pharma, at the large cap pharma stocks saying, you know, after the run up last year, saying, wait a second, what about these patent cliffs? What about this problem? What about this problem? Um, and, uh, and so I think it's probably some kind of combination of those two phenomena. Okay, we will call it a day there. Thank you so much for sharing all these insights and thank you to our listeners for tuning in and for your questions. Tomorrow, Barron's Live will examine bond investing in biodiversity. Penta senior writer Abby Schultz will speak with Stephen Liberatore, head of ESG and impact investing for global fixed income at Nuveen. They'll talk about investing in sustainable ocean management, rhinoceros conservation, and other environmental initiatives through the global bond market. Thanks for tuning in again today, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.